Do you know what an agenda is? An agenda is when a kid, every story, every conversation, every question always ends with, when are we going to get more fireworks? That's an agenda, right? And if you really think about your life, much of what we say, much of the stories we tell, much of the questions we ask actually have behind them a hidden agenda. There's another purpose to them. We're trying to say something without saying it. Now, agendas are not always bad. And we are in the book of Acts right now, studying through it, been there for 25 weeks or so. And Luke, the author of this book, he has an agenda. It's a good agenda. And his agenda is not just to give us an account of the history of the church, which he does, but he actually formulates the book in such a way that he wants to give us some themes that are repeated over and over in the book. I'll give you one. It's missing ingredients in the life of the believer. So Acts 1, you have these disciples that for three and a half years had walked with Jesus, been taught by Jesus, had watched miracles done by Jesus, ministry done by Jesus, had done miracles themselves. They'd been given the sacrament of baptism and communion. Now you would think they're ready to go. They're graduates. But Acts 1 begins with Luke saying, wait, wait for what? Wait for the power, the dunamis, the dynamite of the Holy Spirit. You're not ready yet. You may have all this education, you may have all this stuff, but you're still missing a key ingredient to transform the world. So wait until you have the power of the spirit. Wait, there's a missing ingredient, right? Fast forward to chapter 18. We'll do that on Wednesday night in the air conditioned room right back here. <laughs> on Wednesday, we'll meet this guy named Apollos. He's educated. He is, uh, whoever your favorite preacher is, Apollos was better, brilliant but he was missing something. So chapter 18, verse 26 says, these two mentors, Aquila and Priscilla, grab him and they explain to him the way of God more fully. He was missing something, doctrine. His understanding of God, his theology wasn't completed. So he put himself under these two brilliant theologians who help him and complete him. We'll get to chapter 19 today. We're in the city of Ephesus. There are these disciples there and Paul meets them and he notices something is wrong with them. And what you see is a mini Pentecost actually takes place in chapter 19 because they're missing something, right? So Luke has this agenda. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to write a history of the church, but more than that, he's writing the archetype of the church, the model of the church, and then we are to take our lives and to lay them over this book and say, where are we? How do we match up? Am I in Acts 1? Lots of information, lots of training, lots of seeing other people do it, but I'm still missing the power of God's spirit. Is that me? Or am I like Apollos? I have some gifts and some talents, but my theology is a little off and I need to listen to some older people input into me the right kind of theology? Or I, am I like the 12 disciples 
in Ephesus, leaning on different techniques that are 20 years old. I need to be brought up in what's current. So we're supposed to be laying our lives over and over on this book. So here's what we have in chapter 19. It's what I call acts and steroids. There are these things that have been going on over and over and over. And what you see Luke do here under the inspiration of God's spirit is he takes all those major themes and he compresses the book of Acts into one chapter. And you see almost all the key components here because Ephesus is the last city that Paul, we really hear about in Paul's missionary journeys. From here on, he goes to Jerusalem, gets put into prison and puts on trial. So this is like, it's a summation of how it works. It's a brilliant chapter. And what you see in this city is the gospel comes into this city and it disrupts it. It just absolutely changes them socially, economically, and spiritually. It's a very destabilizing force to Ephesus in all the best ways. And I have a prayer for Grants Pass that the gospel comes into our city and destabilizes it the way it's supposed to be, socially, economically, spiritually, emotionally, just destabilizes it. So here's what you see. Here's what happens. I'll read it for you. It's chapter 19, verse 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business, we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. I love that. You can't make God with your little hands there, buddy. The little carving, that's not a God. No, I just made it, it's God. No, it's not. Like it's such an awesome statement. And there's a danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be de deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worships. Here's what happens. The gospel comes into Ephesus. In two years, the temple of Artemis, which is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, brilliant and beautiful, is empty. No one's going anymore. And Artemis, if you know your history, the worship of her was very sexual. We found the little shrines that these guys made. They were this multi-breasted, hideous looking little God, but it was all about sex. And so what had happened is in this city that used to flourish because of the trade that came through for Artemis, all that trade was drying up. Nobody was going to this place anymore. I love that. It'd be like this modern time. It'd be like all the drug dealers in Grant's past getting together and saying, hey, you know how for years we've made a killing selling meth and heroin, literally. But now because of the way, because of Christians, because of believers, because of Edgewater, no one's buying our drugs anymore. How cool would that be? That's what I want. Now, how did that happen? How did this magnificent temple get emptied. 
Did the Christians make signs and did they go out in front of the temple and did they protest Artemis? Hmm. Did they head off to Rome and try to legislate new morality to stop what was happening in the temple? Huh. Here's what Luke tells us. He says in this little chapter, this condensed, this acts on steroids. He says, here's how it works. And he gives us some key ingredients that have been themes really, but he presses them all together in chapter 19. And he says, really, here's how city transformation happens. Here's how personal transformation happens, okay? So I'm gonna give you the three of them. And I think they're really brilliant. So number one, you wanna see our city transformed? Number one is verse one. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the island country and came to Ephesus where he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 men in all. What you have here as a little mini Pentecost chapters one and two, right? Number one, this city is transformed. Number one, because the power of God's spirit comes upon these 12 men who previous to that for probably 20 years had been in Ephesus preaching John the Baptist style. What's John the Baptist style? Repent, be about good works, get right morally, God, family, country. That's what he was doing. And for 20 years, these men had been doing that with no success, no change in the city. Then all of a sudden, Paul comes, shares with them the power of God's spirit. It comes upon them. And what we'll see is this city is transformed, empties the very halls of immorality. Brilliant. I love that. You and I, if we're ever gonna change our city, require the power of Jesus' spirit. We require it. The Old Testament, these prophets, they, they would pray for this. It was called a visitation of God. God, we pray that you would visit us. And that's my prayer. I pray that God would visit us with power. That the believers who, who feel like they've lost the joy of their salvation, that that would be re-given to them. That the dry bones of Ezekiel would once again have life in them and a great army would be raised up. That'd be brilliant. Oh, I pray for a visitation of Jesus on us as a community of believers. That's how it starts. It starts with the power of God's spirit. It, it's how Acts starts. It's how Ephesus is transformed. Now, Matt, what does that look like? Martin Lloyd-Jones, a guy that I appreciate. He's a Presbyterian. He's not weird. He's not one of those wild guys. He was a medical doctor that went into preaching in London a hundred years ago. Wrote a book on revival. He was interested in like, how do revivals take place? And in that book, he says this, the one common denominator I found through all revivals was this, a group of praying people. 
Like that was what sparked it. I wonder personally, if these 12 men, if what they had been doing for years, 20 years plus, not only preaching like John the Baptist and that stuff, but they were praying, God, visit us. God, visit our city. God, we see it crumbling. God, help us. And God answers, God answers. Prayer. I think sometimes we miss it. I was convicted of this a number of years ago. I have a buddy, his name is Billy Graham Paulos. He's from India and they see cities transformed all the time. Like they're seeing Book of Acts stuff done over and over there. It's amazing. And he came for the first time to visit us here. And I was hanging out with him a bit. And this young mom was heading to Portland. And she said, would you guys pray for me? Would you pray for my trip? And if I prayed, I would have prayed like this. Hey, Jesus, thank you for this opportunity. Bless her, keep her safe. Amen. But instead I said, hey, Billy, do you want to pray? He said, yes. So he starts praying. He's like, Jesus, we pray for the tires. We pray that these tires would hold air all the way from here to Portland and back. We pray for the road. We pray that the road would not have bumps and there wouldn't be accidents and there wouldn't be danger on the, ro- on the roads. Please prepare a path before her on these roads. And the struts, Lord, we pray that the struts would not break, that they'd be solid and, and keep the car on the road correctly. And we pray for the motor that would run strong all the way from here and back. And he kept doing that. And as he's praying, I'm thinking, I have never prayed for the tires on my car <laughs> because I trust Michelin. I have never prayed for the roads from here to Portland and back because I trust ODOT, kind of, sometimes not so much. I have never prayed for my struts because I trust Les Schwab. I have prayed for my motor because I drive a Volkswagen. There is moments that I have to pray for that. But here's the thing with Billy, he had no option. They drove tires that were retreads of retreads. They drove on roads that are not roads. They're not roads. I don't know what they are, but they are not a road right? They drive ancient prehistoric vehicles. They're, they had one, they know, God, if you don't shut up, show up, this isn't going to happen. It's like the psalmist would say, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we remember the name of Yahweh, our God. That's our sole trust. And because that's the only thing that they had to trust in, and they keep looking to him and praying to him. And when you pray to God, I think it just opens up the door for God to do something great. God, we need you. We require you. We humbly get on our knees and say, visit our city. And so God says, yes, I will. Yes, I will. Transformation personally, church-wide, city-wide, begins with the power of God's spirit. Acts 1 and 2, Ephesians 1 through 7. That's number one. Do we really I want God to come in a way that destabilizes us, changes us, maybe financially, spiritually, emotionally. Because if we're not willing for that kind of change, then I don't think it comes. It comes when the people humbly say, God, visit us, period. You're the sovereign God and whatever you choose to do, we will submit to it. That's number one. Number two, right after that, verse eight. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Power of God's spirit, number two, right kind of preaching. Paul here 
doesn't rail against the temple at Artemis. How, look at how bad that place is. Look at all that immorality there. He doesn't do that. What does he do? He just keeps telling people about the kingdom of God. He keeps preaching the kingdom. You can look at chapter 20 when he talks to the elders at Ephesus. He says, I didn't, didn't neglect to tell you about all the kingdom of God. That was his message. Matt, what's the kingdom of God? Paul tells us, Romans 14, verse 17. The kingdom of God is not meat nor drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. The kingdom is not about things you can touch and feel. It's about rightness. You and your creator right with each other. The animosity that you felt before you were a believer, all of a sudden peace is made. You're right with the God of the universe. Peace, shalom, that there's a peace that passes all understanding, no matter what your circumstances are. Joy unspeakable, because it's this fruit of God's spirit. Just, you, you smile no matter what your day is. Who doesn't want that? But I want that. Paul preached the kingdom. I think sadly, too often what comes out of the pulpits is not the kingdom of God, but what we're against right? Don't do that. Don't go there. Don't watch this. Don't wear those clothes. Boycott this thing. Picket that thing. Like all this. No, 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 no. You know, don't do that, but you can't give me your money, which I don't think is a very persuading message. Instead, what Paul says is, man, the kingdom, the kingdom. I have a professor at school. His name is Gary Bashirs, And he told us this, when you preach, don't put down somebody's Big Mac. Just hold up your filet mignon. I love that. I've never forgot that. Totally. Why would I waste my energy telling people how bad a Big Mac is? No, I'm going to hold up the kingdom. The king has come. The invasion has begun. Evil will be vanquished. You and I right now are kings and queens in training. One day we'll take our rightful place full potential leading the universe behind our great King Jesus. The wolf will lay down with the lamb. All that is evil, all disease, all that's wrong will be crunched up and thrown in this place called the lake of fire and gone for eternity. That's good news. I don't need to tell you the bad news. There's 50 channels that do that all the time. I'm gonna tell you about the filet mignon that is the kingdom of God. I'm gonna do that over and over and over again. Because if not, you make God seem like a cosmic killjoy. He's against all this stuff. No, he's not. That's not God at all. You hold up the kingdom. And what happens is this, when you've eaten filet mignon, you don't wanna eat a Big Mac. <laughs> Artemis and her worship was emptied, not because they were preaching against it, but because they held up a filet mignon and people said, I'm not going there anymore. I found the truth. I found righteousness and peace and joy. And that place is trash. That's what he does. It's the right message. Kingdom. And then lastly, look at this. This story is unbelievable. Verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles. Right? There are miracles. And then there are extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick 
and their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, how'd you like that for a job? What do you do? I'm an itinerant exorcist. Do you need help? Undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know. And Paul, I recognize, but who are you? You know what you call that? Uh (laughs) Uh-oh, this is an uh uh-oh moment. And the man in whom there was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. A piece of silver is what you made in a day, 50 days wages. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Lastly, there's a change of appetite. There's a change of appetite in this city. Now, Wednesday, when we get to this text, we'll take some time because it's just crazy. But I want to look at one little aspect of it. It's the people of God, verse 18, purify themselves And then verse 20, power is released. Those two are linked throughout scripture, purity and power. They get rid of the junk and power flows through them. Here's what's mind blowing to me. Paul had for two years, Paul, the apostle Paul, writer of the Bible, had been teaching these guys for two years and there was in his church, a group of people that were dabbling in the arts and devilish stuff. Listening to Paul preach, they're still playing the hokey pokey. One foot in, one foot out. Lukewarm. And there is a catalyst that finally causes them to change. What is it? Fear, someone said it. They saw behind the veil of what they were dabbling in and they're like, whoa, That's dangerous. That's deadly. We gotta get rid of that. Oh no, it was fear. Their eyes were opened and they saw what they were doing and they got rid of it, fear. Now, if you've been here any time, you know this, I'm a grace guy, 100%. I'm Romans 2, 4. It is the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. I wanna hold up the filet filet mignon of what God has for you and for me every single time I preach. It's called the good news. I wanna do that over and over and over so that you lose the appetite for the Big Mac. But here's what I also know. We have a real enemy who has an ability to make his Big Macs look like Kobe beef. He has this ability to twist and pervert the thing that is deadly and disastrous because Big Macs are deadly and disastrous. <laughs> and make them look like, ah, oh, it's filet mignon. He does that. 
So there's a proverb and I'm gonna go there super quickly that shows this. So if you have a Bible, turn to Proverbs chapter nine. It just shows how there is such a deceit in our enemy that you and I have to be aware of or impurity will come into our life and dilute the power that God wants for us. So look at this, it's amazing. Verse one, chapter nine. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let them turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live. I'm offering life. And walk in the way of insight. You'll see now. Okay, this is the way of wisdom. She sets a party. She kills beasts, plural, giant barbecue. She mixes the best kind of wine. She offers bread and just says to the simple, come and feast on this table. Come enjoy the feast I have for you. I love that. This is, this is what God wants for us personified. Do you know that, the God, that God is the author of joy? Do you know that? Like joy is his idea. Somehow I think we've got it backwards and the church has been kind of marked as this kind of fuddy-duddy, what we're against, don't do that, don't go here. And, and, it's, and it's wrong. First Timothy 6, 17, God says this, I've given you all things to enjoy. I've given you all things to enjoy. First Corinthians 5 says this, Jesus is our Passover, so let's come and feast. Enjoy it. Leviticus, one of my favorite passages is Leviticus, which is the law. It's the part of the Bible when you're trying to read through the Bible that when you get there, you give up, right? In that it says this, God says, in the law, three times a year, Israel, pack up, come to Jerusalem and party. Come here and party. It's the law. Party or I'm going to kill you, God is saying. Right, party or die. I think one of the best ways you can ever actually express the gospel of the kingdom is to throw a block party for all your neighbors, kill some beasts or go to Costco, make a massive spread for them and just say, hey, come, let's enjoy. And you don't have to exposit the book of Romans there. You don't have to say to your neighbor who's like, hey, this is really great. Why'd you do this? Well, you know, I want to have fun with you before you die and go to hell. You don't have to say that. You just say, I'm just here because man, God's been so good to me. Jesus has blessed me so much. My cup runs over. I can't help but to bless you as well. Like that can be the best gospel proclamation. And that's what's being said right here. Come in simple ones to the feast wisdom has for you. But then look down a couple of verses. Verse 13, it compares now the house of wisdom with the house of the world. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there. 
and that our guests are in the depths of Sheol or the grave. Notice how similar it is. They both have a house. They're both in the same spot, the high important place of the city. They both have a table. They both have food on there. They both call the same clientele, simple, lacking sense, come into my home. But that's where the comparisons end because wisdom has this feast, beasts, barbecue, best wine. What does the world offer? Bread and water, which are what? Prison rations. But notice how the world dresses them up. It's not just bread and water, is it? It's verse 17, stolen water is sweet. Really? Ever been to jail? I know they weren't your drugs. Got it. No problem. Anyone in there for stealing water? Dude, what are you in for? I stole some water. Oh man, that's terrible. No, nobody steals water. The cops aren't guarding the rogue river. Don't you dare steal some of this. It's ridiculous. But the world has this way of dressing up things that ordinarily we'd be like, well, that's nothing. Putting a skirt on it and you're like, whoa, that's awesome. Stolen water, yeah, that is sweeter. And then the second thing she offers is bread eaten in secret. You ever secretly ate some bread? <laughs> right? My kids, I have a lot of them. Sometimes there's five in my house. Sometimes there's seven. Sometimes there's 70. And uh, there'll be food that I want to eat, like a Dove ice cream bar. And they will eat that in secret. <laughs> but I've never been like, where I can hear one of them eating. And then pulled like a couch. And they're behind that couch. And I'm like, what are you doing? What are you eating? And one of my kids is like, toast. I'm sorry. I couldn't help it. Right? It's ridiculous. But that's the way of the world. Dressing up prison rations, dressing up death and getting people to consume it. That's what, it, that's what Satan does. He takes his Big Mac and tries to make it look like a filet mignon. Does it all the time. We have a real enemy who's really good at it. Like it saddens me to read the statistics on married Christian men who look at porn. I just say, what? what in the world? And I talk with them, I'm like, dude, the real thing is in the bedroom right next to you. What are you doing? Well, my wife doesn't look like that. Nobody does. It's a fantasy, bro. No one looks like that. You're eating bread and water. It's gonna bring you to death. You're missing out on the incredible intimacy that only happens when a man and woman are committed to each other for life. You're missing out on that. That we are never designed to have sex with a body, but to make love to a soul. And that's what happens in marriage. And you're missing that. And the Hebrew uses these words, ahava and dod and hased to speak about the relationship of a man with a woman. And they're brilliant and beautiful. And you're giving that up for prison rations. And it happens all the time because we have an enemy who's really good at making his Big Mac look like a filet mignon. Consumerism. Like I'm amazed at grown men that will wait in line for the next trinket. Like you, what, what, what? I can't even get it. You remind me of my four-year-old who says this to me all the time. Like, dad, if you will just buy me this, I will never ask for anything again, right? Like really, buddy? 45-year-old men are still doing the same thing. If I just had this thing, I will never want anything again. Oh, goodness gracious. Goodness. 
spending so much time on devices. Listen to me carefully. Man, they're great. No problem with them. But one day they'll be in the dust heap. But listen, the person sitting right next to you, when the mountains around Grant's Pass have been eroded to flat desert, the person next to you will still exist. When the sun goes dim and goes out, the person next to you will still exist. We are not created for trinkets. We are created for relationships. Invest in what matters and what lasts. But the enemy has this way of getting us just distracted with bread and water and go on and on. On and on. The occult now, it's blatant. It's unbelievable to me. How the occult, it's just, it's spreading rapidly right now. Getting its tentacles into everything. It's everywhere. Entertainment, like, but there's a really good plot to it. Yeah, but where's your mind at after you watch that stuff? Right. Selfishness. People just consumed with me. Do you feel really good after you're really selfish? Are you like, man, that was awesome today. It was so selfish. Praise me. Hallelujah me. No, it's just rip. It's, you went into the house of folly. That's where you went. I have an agenda today and I'm almost done. What I want for us is I want an Acts 19, 17 moment where you're able to, for a moment, have insight into the house you've walked into. That you know, this is leading me to the grave. I, I'm, I'm drinking deadly poison right now. This is not the flame mignon that God has for me. It's death. I want that moment. We all need that moment. People listening to the apostle Paul needed that moment because the enemy is so good at deceiving. He masquerades as an angel of light. He's so good. He's had 2000 years to do it. And there are people sitting here right now that are letting death come into their house. You're in the wrong home, man. And wisdom is still calling to you. Come into my house, feast on this. I'm inviting you right now. Come into my home, get out of that house. It's killing you, it's destroying you. And you know it, you know it. And most people at some point, they wake up to it. They wake up to the world like, why have I been eating bread and water when there's a feast for me? Well, maybe today is that day for you. Maybe it's an Acts 19, 17 moment. You know, you know if there's darkness in you, you know if you're dabbling in it, you know it. Here's what these guys did in Acts 19. They picked it up, they walked out in public and they threw it on a burn pile and burned it up publicly. There's something powerful in publicly acknowledging, yeah, that's me. So I'm gonna ask you to do something that's gonna be super hard. But just because it's hard doesn't mean it's not good. This could be the first step for you to start walking out of that house and there's gonna be more because that house will try to grab you back in. But this could be that first step where you're able to start breaking free of death and turning to wisdom that says, come, live, have insight, feast. I'm not gonna ask you to confess anything. I'm not asking that. I'm just asking you to raise your hand and say, there's darkness. I've been dabbling and I need help. I need, I need a step. So right now, I want you, if that's you, you just raise your hand. 
And I think God's spirit is here to set people free. So raise your hand, keep them up. Those that are close to somebody whose hand is up, I want you to lay your hand on them. There should be as many hands as possible on people. Paul in Ephesus lays his hand on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. There's something about the laying on of hands. So put your hand out right now, touch them, touch them. So Jesus, this day, eyes have been opened. Purity is being desired. John the Baptist said that you would come and you would baptize with fire and with the Holy Spirit. We need your fire to burn the junk inside of us. So I pray right now for those that have raised their hands, knowing that they've been drinking poison, deciding this day they wanna eat the filet mignon of the kingdom. I pray that you would be setting them free that this would be a step that heads them in the right direction to the great wise feast that you have for them. I pray, Lord God, that your spirit would fall upon them with power, that they would have a visitation from you and that their life would become one that is powerful and impacting and our city would be transformed because they raised their hand on a Sunday and you visited them. So set Free your people, I pray. And we pray this in your name. Amen.